You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And today I'm joined by a special guest, my colleague at The Diplomat, Franz Stefan Gatti, who writes on defense and security issues. Franz, thanks all for joining me. Good to be in the program, Ankit. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a while since we've had you on. Um, this is actually kind of new for us since we're recording this podcast in person. Franz and I are sitting here with a couple drinks in our hand, hoping today to talk a bit about his recent article written for The Diplomat's magazine, the May issue of the magazine specifically. If you're not a subscriber, you should definitely subscribe and check that out. But Franz has penned a very interesting article on a topic that I find very interesting, which is conventional deterrence in Asia. And we'll get a bit into it, and you know, we'll try to keep this conversation um, engaged with you know topics in Asian geopolitics today without getting too academic and into the theory of conventional deterrence and the practice of conventional deterrence. But Franz, I wanted to you know turn it over to you to just kind of walk us through the core arguments that you make in your article and the core observations that you offer about the state of conventional deterrence in Asia. Yes, uh, thank you, Ankit. And first of all, let me really thank you for um, a really delicious cocktail. And just in case you're tired of uh, analyzing nuclear uh, uh, North Korean uh, missile launches, um, I can recommend you to a couple of barkeepers in Manhattan. Noted, thank you. <laughs> um, in any case, um, I think it would be really useful just to give our audience maybe a brief definition of what actually conventional deterrence mm-hmm. means or how I would uh, define it. And I think... Um, the basic definition of conventional deterrence is that it um, obtains when you can convince an aggressor that you're able to deny um, his battlefield objectives with conventional forces. That is, um, the probability of success is, is you know, pretty low for uh, an aggressor. And um, this is can be compounded by um, this fear of getting bogged down in a war of attrition, which I think every single military dread in the world dreads very much. The classic example that is given in the international relations literature, for example, would be um, the first few months of the Second World War, where Great Britain and France did not invade uh, Germany because they feared that they would not be able to break through the so-called secret line and get bogged down uh, in a war of attrition and ultimately would not be able to prevail. Mm-hmm. So to simplify what you're saying, um, to kind of you know reference Tom Schelling's writing on this, for example, it's a simple cost-benefit calculus for the aggressor. And the objective of the, the party interested in having conventional deterrence prevail is to convince the aggressor that the costs of undertaking any kind of aggressive action would fundamentally outweigh the benefits. That That's correct, correct. And the reverse side of that is that conventional deterrence usually breaks down according to a theory uh, when one side thinks that they can actually achieve a very a quick and cheap military victory or a decisive uh, military victory rather. Um, classic example again is the Second World War and the German Blitzkrieg campaigns, but there are many other examples such as uh, the North Korean attack uh, in 1950 um, against South Korea, the war in East Pakistan in 1971, or um, uh, even the Falklands Wars uh, of 19. 19- 82, where Argentina, Argentina was convinced that they could actually quickly seize the Falkland Islands without any major repercussions uh, uh, from the British. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about conventional deterrence, this may be useful to outline at the onset of this podcast, but we're basically excluding, um, or let me put it this way, we're including all tools of national and military power, excluding weapons of mass destruction. So we're setting aside nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, and basically undertaking all other military and national tools of power and thinking about how we can, how various actors in the Asia Pacific can use those to have conventional deterrence prevail. 
Right, that's correct. And again, going back to the IR literature, you can basically separate deterrence into two major categories. You have deterrence uh, by punishment, which is m primarily confined to just what you said, uh, weapons of mass destruction, primarily nuclear weapons, where you try to deter an aggressor from doing something by essentially saying that I'm going to destroy um, your major industrial bases, your um, major military bases in the rear. And by doing so often also, uh, you, you know, the aggressor would... Um, sustain major civilian casualties and uh, deterrence by denial where what I just previously said you deny him essentially success on the battlefield and these are the two major categories and I think um, it's 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 very useful to keep them apart um, I maybe want to briefly just talk about why I think uh, deterrence or conventional deterrence is rather weak in Asia just maybe run through my major arguments let's go through article. that yeah, yeah sure. should we should we do that so um, my first point essentially in the piece is that uh, conventional deterrence is weak in Asia because there's been a diffusion of military capabilities and to all uh, diplomat readers this is no surprise um, we are writing on the subject every day um, there's just been a major major uh, arms acquisition uh, process happening in Asia over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, it, just to confine it to major acquisitions, um, almost every major Asian power is uh, in, is in the process of acquiring a fifth generation uh, warfighter. All the major navies in the Asia region are mass uh, launching new ships, uh, stealth frigates, stealth uh, destroyers, and so forth. Um, all the major powers are acquiring nu uh, not nuclear, excuse me, uh, any types of submarines. Um, not uh, the interesting thing about all of this is that there, you know, that there is no hegemonic power that sort of controls this these minor arms races, and this, in my opinion, increases the risk of miscalculation by some of these uh, regional powers in Asia. My second point is that there's, and that's more of an obscure point, I think, or abstract rather, that um, there is, largely with the exception of North Korea, I would say, and I don't know whether you agree with me on this point, uh, ideological conformity. And I think this is really important when we talk about conventional deterrence, because if you don't have a revolutionary power that tries to seize another country's territory and tries to impose its system, I think this also opens up um, the Pandora's box of miscal military miscalculations, because if there's no real life and death struggle, um, I think the cost of defeat, but also victory is seen as uh, is, is calculated to be lower. And I think this, this sort of makes limited war limited war more attractive. And I think that's also reflected in military doctrines. Uh, if you look at uh, doctrines of Asian militaries, for example, uh, in China, this idea of the local wars under modern high-tech technology conditions, which is very specifically geared towards, I think, fighting a, a war for limited aims uh, for a brief period of time. In India, you have the so-called proactive doctrine, or as it's colloquially called, uh, the cold start doctrine, that's also largely uh, a conventional deterrence doctrine to fight a localized war, um, to seize territory and seize the territory primarily for the purpose of um, um, strengthening India's bargaining position vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan in the event of a conflict. Um, the major issue here, though, is that all of these local wars, of course, can turn into wars of attrition. And um, my point in the article is that, in that sense, Asia very much looks like Europe in the 18th century during the 
you know, age of cabinet wars, which lasted for about a hundred years towards the end of the, from uh, the end of the 17th century to the end of the 18th century. And you had these gigantic wars in, in, in Europe that, that produced massive casualties. And ultimately also World War One, in a sense, was a war that was started because people thought it was a short localized war that ended up being a world war. So I think it's a very dangerous trend that we are seeing. Um, this, the third point, and I'll be, just, I'll, I'll be very brief on that one because uh, we've talked about this a lot in the past. And, and and we have many articles on the subject in uh, on our website. That is that it's sort of unclear under what circumstances countries in Asia are actually willing to go to war. I mean, is it really what's rhetoric and what's really genuine commitment? I think is the major question here, and that really particularly pertains to fringe territorial disputes, so, you know, in the South China Sea, or even what we saw last year uh, between China and India in Toklam, this, the Toklam standoff, which you wrote a lot of stuff uh, on, Keith. But uh, it also includes, of course, the Senkakus. And I think a major driver here is also the United States. And given the recent uh, administration statements, in particular uh, statements by uh, U.S. Uh, President uh, Trump, it's very, very unclear. I think it, he, he even muddied the waters a bit more in that regard. Under what circumstances the United States uh, would go to war? Of course, there are exceptions, as we right. discussed previously, such as uh, the Korean Peninsula. But I think it's pretty clear that the United, under what circumstances the United States are going to go to war. And uh, my last point um, is that although Asian militaries in general think very, and I think the operative word here is think, very seriously about conventional deterrence, I'm not so convinced that, that they are actually implementing conventional deterrence postures when it comes to militaries. When you look at, for example, Japan, uh, which only recently stood up an amphibious assault brigade, and from my opinion, when I look at what Japan has in terms of uh, airlifting capabilities, sea lifting capabilities, there's no way that they can get these uh, get these soldiers quickly enough to any of the islands in order to really deter China from doing anything in the event of a conflict um, to seize you know the first island chain and 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 so forth. Um, when you look in the Korean Peninsula, the Republic of Korea military still lacks ISR capabilities. Without they really could not implement their so-called. Uh, kill chain preemptive strike program, which is part of um, Korea's so-called massive punishment uh, and retaliation strategy, without the United States, of course. But 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 I think that's something that that, that we should discuss the United States role in all of this. And then, of course, there's Taiwan, which I, when I look at the military, I see that they are obviously uh, concerned about uh, Chinese uh, mainland Chinese military action. But then again, I have to ask the question, why do they invest into an air force that will get shot down within you know, the first moments of a conventional war between two countries and do not, um, for example, invest adequately into um, air uh, surface-to-air systems that could actually really make it hard for the Chinese or actually deny the People's Liberation Army Air Force uh, the airspace over Taiwan. And um, all of this together, I think, just these are just a few examples where I think it shows that, that there's a lot of talk, but I'm not sure how how the militaries are really prepared when it comes to conventional warfare in Asia. I'll stop sure. here for now. All right. 
Thank you for that. Um, I think there's a lot that you've left me with to think about and ask you about. Um, I think I want to come back to nearly all of those. Well, first, I want to begin with your point about um, the balance of power and military investments across the region. I think you correctly noted that, you know, yes, um, all the major militaries are investing in fifth generation fighter aircraft, submarines, um, surface warfare vessels. Um, but I do think there's an important difference in scale, um, particularly between China and a lot of countries in the region that are particularly worried about, you know, China's rise and and China's um, expanding um, more, you know, ambitious role that, you know, the PLA and its 2015 national military strategy has called for a, or the PLAN rather, has called for a more expeditionary role um, across the uh, Indo-Pacific region in the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. Um, and here's something that's interesting from a recent um, observation at the IISS, that uh, since 2014, China has launched more submarines, more warships, principal amphibious vessels, and auxil auxiliary ships than the total number of vessels currently serving the navies of Germany, India, Spain, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom combined. So I think that's like an incredible difference in scale right now, um, just to give you an example of, you know, Chinese shipbuilding. And I wonder sort of, um, you know, a lot of what China is doing is, in my mind, predicated around um, conventional deterrence. I think the PLA in particular is quite acutely aware of a lot of the questions that you raised about, for example, the conditions under which the United States would commit the full might of its military to defend a narrow objective like the sovereignty of the Senkaku Islands, or even, you know, I mean, I think we can even throw in an invasion of Taiwan into that, um, into that Discussion. So I wanted to ask you, you know, when you think about the scale at which China is um, pursuing conventional modernization, what's your uh, what's your chief observation? You know, what's your main takeaway from that? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question, and I just want to go quickly back to uh, the Cold War years. And I think something we should keep in mind when we talk about deterrence in general is that modern deterrent theory, and it was primarily, of course, in the nuclear field was basically build, uh, built upon a false premise. That is that the Soviets were eager to overrun Western Europe. <laughs> so the entire idea why we, or why people in the 50s and 60s started seriously thinking about deterrence was essentially because they tried to deter an aggressor. But by all means, you know, the Soviets did not really have any aggressive intentions, at least in the 1950s and 60s after the Second World War. That's really fairly well established. Um, having, And I want to use that example just to say that yeah, if we assume that China has certain aggressive intentions, then of course we have to pay attention to the shipbuilding and, you know, the military expansion of, of uh, you know, that, that is occurring. But from my reading, I just think um, where is if China is really serious about projecting its power and really aggressively expanding in Asia, I think they would pour much more money and would do much more in terms of, uh, you know, uh, launching ships and other military capabilities that they're, that they're, than they're doing now. I, I, I find it, of course, there's a, there's a major imbalance, but that's primarily because um, the other countries don't keep up with China because I don't think they really genuinely are that afraid that Ch China is going to attack them, to mm -hmm. put it in a nutshell. Well, you know, something else that comes to mind here, um, and I think you also got at this, you know, when you were talking about like Taiwan's investments in aircraft, for example, um, a lot of militaries um, simply don't think about conventional deterrence in the way that, you know, 
the two of us were kind of blessed with the ability to sit here in our armchairs with a cocktail in hand talking about these issues too. I mean, there's, for example, you know, competing bureaucratic interests, uh, democratic changes and priorities in a lot of these countries that affect how costs are allocated. Um, India, I think, is a perfect example of a very dysfunctional defense procurement process for a variety of reasons. I mean, all of these kind of bureaucratic factors, um, everything else that comes into play can really warp our understanding. And of course, you know, there are kind of um, national prestige and... Um, um, uh, considerations as well. And I think this is something that, you know, a lot of people point to with, for example, China's pace of shipbuilding that uh, could, you know, I, I think this is actually a very valuable question that you hint at that I think a lot of analysts in the United States maybe take for granted that, uh, you know, what China is doing with the shipbuilding force is perhaps the best way for it to build out its Northeast and South Sea fleets. But, you know, could China be spending its resources more thoughtfully if it actually did have um, more aggressive intentions in the Indian Ocean, for example? You know, would it make sense for right. China to be investing more in attack submarines than, you know, frigates? I, I think, I you know, you, that, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a very valid point. I think just, I, I, you know, if we really think that China, there's like a you know, big warfighting strategy behind all of this, I don't think China would be building aircraft carriers, for example which are immensely vulnerable to any sorts of uh, attacks by the United States and its allies. And so I don't think that this is, you know, this is, I think, one indication why I don't think that these, uh, you know, the intentions are, are, are aggressive. And I'm only mentioning this in the context of conventional deterrence because, of course, uh, the basic premise of conventional deterrent theory is that you're deterring an aggressor. But if there's no aggressor, then deterrence is not really that... Um, you know that 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 useful um, you know when it comes to interstate relations and so the major question is if det uh, conventional deterrence is weak in Asia is it really a big deal I don't know what are you know what are, you have any thoughts on that well let me ask you actually okay. I mean before I offer my thoughts but do you worry about um, a serious breakdown of conventional deterrence in a you know along one of the Asian flashpoints that we, you know, cover at the Diplomat, for example, like in the Taiwan Strait, the Korean Peninsula, I think there was a lot of concern there, but I think the nuclearization of North Korea introduces a new variable there. South Asia has always been interesting since, um, as you noted in your article, we have, you know, one of the more prominent examples of two nuclear armed states engaging in a conventional conflict in 1999, the Cargill War. Um, so broadly, when you look at the conventional deterrence um, the state of conventional deterrence across the Asia Pacific. Do you worry about a potential breakdown and, a, and the breakout of conflict? Well, I think it's our, it's our profession to be constantly worried about uh, a conflict breaking out. I think that's the nature of being a defense analyst. We have to be pessimists in many ways when we look um, into the future. In general terms, I'm not as worried, in, to be honest, just because... I feel that most that these uh, sorts of military com competitions that we are seeing right now in Asia, they're fairly uh, organic. These things um, have been going on for a couple of decades. And just think about the fact that the last time that the Chinese military has seen any military action was in 1988. So you could actually say we have weak conventional deterrence in Asia, but we haven't really seen a major war that occurred in many, many years in Asia. So I think this could be one indication that it's not something to be worried about. At the same time, there are obviously issues with the United States being seen as a power that is slowly uh, withdrawing from Asia, or at least disengaging from Asia, 
the United States is obviously an Asian power and will remain so. But still, um, this idea that we can't really be sure about U.S. defense commitments, for example, I do think this adds a little bit of volatility to the whole mix that wasn't there a couple of years ago uh, before the Trump administration and even before Obama, frankly, because even with Obama, despite this pivot to Asia, I think a lot of Asian states were very worried about what the United States is really committed uh, to do in support of its regional partners and allies. Mm hmm. Well, so we're coming up uh, sort of on the end of our time today, but I think uh, the way I want to end this discussion today is talk about the conditions under which the United States would commit to military action in the Asia Pacific, most probably against China. Um, this is a topic that I think merits serious attention just this week. We have new reports of China in placing um, cruise missiles and anti, um, anti-ship cruise missiles and anti-air systems on the Spratly Islands. Despite the United States' best efforts to demonstrate its presence in the South China Sea, clearly that's been insufficient. So have U.S. public statements in support of freedom of navigation. Um, recently, uh, in, in January, I was uh, fortunate enough to be in Tokyo where I participated in a grand strategy simulation looking at uh, a various, um, you know, a range of contingencies in the Asia Pacific, and um, you know, in the in the simulation that I participated in, the uh, the team playing the United States chose not to commit to um, U.S. military action when it became quite apparent that China would credibly succeed in an invasion of Taiwan, for example. And that's one of the situations that I personally worry about quite a bit um, between now and 2049, right? That's a stated Chinese objective for the centennial of the founding of the People's Republic is to forcibly unify Taiwan with with China. Um, but, you know, and then I found out that at the end of that simulation, you know, over the course of um, several years, uh, the teams playing the United States would often find it just impossible to um, forge a national interest rationale to commit U.S. blood and treasure to the defense of many of these objectives. And this is the, I guess, this is the fundamental question underlying a lot of questions about allied commitments um, for the United States, right? I mean, um, South Korea is an interesting example because, uh, you know, we have 28,500 U.S. troops on the line functioning effectively as a tripwire with them and their families that by, by putting U.S. troops in the line of fire of North Korean missiles, the United States' commitment to South Korea becomes a lot more credible, which is partly why I also worry about the Trump administration's recent comments about potentially withdrawing troops or significant uh, are, you, are you actually worried about that? Um, like what? I think, yeah, I mean, you know, just to go on an aside on that, I think the the gamut of potential outcomes of the Trump-Kim summit is wider than I ever thought it would be. I mean, in my head, when we heard about this summit in March, I assumed that by the time we got to early May, we'd have a narrowing of objectives and we'd have better information about what the United States was looking for. In fact, I think we've had the opposite. We've had a broadening of potential outcomes. I mean, now we even have reports that the United States and China are considering a grand bargain involving the withdrawal of U.S. missile defense assets. Um, but anyways, going back to this question right, right, of, right. Um, of uh, force commitment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I want to ask you, um, so, you know, you, you brought up the Senkaku Islands. Um, you know, let's talk about, you know, second Thomas Shoal, Scarborough Shoal in the South China Sea. The, uh, let's talk about, you know, I think the Korean Peninsula, I think, is one of the least ambiguous instances of this right now, given the U.S. presence. Uh, I agree, yes. Um, and then, you know, we have all of this talk of a free and open Indo-Pacific, which I think, you know, gets into other issues in the Indian Ocean region. But certainly with the uh, with U.S. allies, um, with these um, areas where China has been quite successful with salami slicing, 
tactics. Um, what's your what's your understanding at the end of the day? I mean, uh, you know, looking into account, uh, you know, taking into account U.S. Um, domestic politics, for example, justifying to the American people that uh, it's critical for the United States to expend resources in defending, you know, Second Thomas Scholl or uh, Scarborough Scholl would be quite difficult, I imagine. Um, so, does that sort of pose a um, an intractable problem for conventional? Right. I mean, um, uh, so a couple of ways to answer the question. Uh, first of all, I want to say that this. Historically, it's never been a problem for U.S. presidents really up until Vietnam to justify intervention in a obscure place in the world, uh, frankly, because the American people don't don't really care. And uh, by the time they wake up that there has been some military action, it's often too late and the United States is committed and U.S. troops have already been killed. And that sort of uh, creates a self-perpetuating cycle when it comes to military conflict. Um, I think it, it goes back to uh, how we started the conversation, just the fact that how much can you actually do with nuclear deterrence in the sense that how is US, the U.S. nuclear arsenal really deterring high-intensity conflict or actually conventional warfare? Because, of course, we didn't really address the connection between conventional deterrence and nuclear deterrence uh, just yet. I think that's something that maybe something we can uh, talk about uh, during another podcast. I think, obviously... Precisely in order to undermine conventional deterrence, China has created this, those gray zone coercion um, scenarios where they try to uh, push their for you know towards their um, objectives, you know, really below the threshold of military conflict. Precisely for the reason that I do think they fear convention, uh, they fear conventional American forces or Japanese con conventional forces. Um, I do think there's something to be said about conventional deterrence in general. I think uh, nuclear deterrence has overshadowed the, the destructive capacity of a lot of, well, essentially of conventional armies, conventional navies, and conventional militaries. And I think this is something that we're going to see in the next couple of years and decades. Uh, this sort of merging of conventional with nuclear deterrence just because of the advances in terms of conventional payloads, precision strike capabilities of all the major uh, militaries in Asia. And I think um, uh, it's an interesting um, discussion to have on a theoretical basis, but I think it will have some real-time implications for policymakers. Um, and I don't think you can, at some point, um, you can do a lot of the things that you were only able to do with nuclear deterrence through conventional deterrence because the destructive power of conventional weapons is only increasing. So I think um, one argument would be that this is actually strengthening conventional deterrence and therefore the Chinese are doing precisely what I think any other state would be doing who, you know, is considered to be a revisionist power and has, you know, wants to expand its influence and really wants to uh, seize territories that they think are rightfully theirs. At the same time, um, I do think, um, I'm too worried that, you know, whenever you play with fire at some, at some point, certain things are going to start catching fire, right? And so um, I think it's a very dangerous game that China is playing in the, and, and, and I think for all the other reasons I described in my article, uh, if conventional deterrence really breaks down, I do think it is a much more dangerous world that we will wake up to in Asia and in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So to sort of you know tie uh, tie to the details that we often talk about in our podcast, you know, let's let's like take the South China Sea as an example with this recent deployment of um, cruise missiles on Fiery Cross, uh, Subi, and Mischief Reef. Um, you know. The United States has been conducting freedom of navigation operations, uh, even um, freedom of navigation operations asserting high seas freedom around Mischief Reef. Um, you know, we now kind of enter into this interesting new era where, um, you know, we could have a YJ-12 anti-ship cruise missile, you know, locking radars with a uh, U.S. destroyer 
um, raising the stakes considerably. Um, do you worry about conventional brinkmanship in the South China Sea? And how absolutely, that, yes, you know? no, absolutely. Um, I, I, I really do, and uh, it's not just that; it's more subtle stuff like jamming, for example. Yeah. I mean, is jamming considered to an act of? I mean, what's the definition? Do you know? I don't specifically right. know. But and they do have electric warfare equipment. So, e exactly, yeah, you know. So this is this is the sort of stuff that you really have to be very careful. Right. Um, and again, it's it's going to be. I mean, for us people, it's it's really going to be an interesting couple of months just to see what is happening there because we can test a lot of the theories that we've been thinking about when it comes to uh, the initiation of conflict and military uh, confrontations. But um, I am I'm, I am very worried about that just because once you have navies that close with offensive weapons. A simple mistake can really trigger a lot of bad things. Right. I mean, you know, fortunately, we do have a lot of reports of the interactions between U.S. and Chinese crews still being professional and collegial for the most part in the South China Sea. Actually, a lot of the sailors from both sides even sort of know each other when they interact because the communications crews are often the same people. R right, right, so, right. So, you know, so that's like the one saving grace. We do have, you know, the the Q's protocols and um, all that. But, you know, I mean, this example in Djibouti recently of the blinding laser weapons. You um, wrote about that yeah, that's right been, yesterday. Yeah, that's been mm -hmm, very, mm -hmm. that's also concerning. I mean, it just shows, I think, a new level of risk tolerance um, among among the Chinese People's Liberation Army. No, and it's it, they're really trying to establish facts on the ground, um, and 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 I think they're really really uh, consistent in their approach, and I think that's something that that you know U.S. policymakers have to think about seriously. Absolutely. Well, hey, Franz, thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you very much, Ankit. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to do more of these podcasts over uh, over drinks. Um, um, yes, and I think I'm ready for a refill. So. All right. So <laughs> I guess with that note, um, thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you can get future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't left us a review, please do so on iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.